Well, boys, looks like you started the fun without me. You're all sick. Every last one of you. We're going to need a bigger gun. What's the matter? You scared of things that go boom? This is so weird, I don't even know if I can do this. <laughs> Whatever. Go with it. Go with it. My name is Eric, and I am here today in a tiny box <laughs> with Michael Chester. <laughs> oh. What's going on, man? I'm a small I'm a small man in a box. Right? Oh my god. I did there. Um Yeah, you're a small man I'm in a, a box boy. Um, I'm in a box. I'm on a phone. This reminds me um, of that closet episode. You remember that? I'm on top of some uh, some cards. So I warned everybody last week this would happen. I, and sure know, enough, I can't sure stop enough. thinking about that right now. All right. So here's the deal. Because I want to let everybody in on the inside joke. <sighs> because this entire episode may go up in flames, so to speak. So what you're saying is that our options are this episode will fall down or be on fire? Both. No, it will do both. <laughs> in fact, I guarantee it. Shortly after saying last time that it's really hard to continue doing a show with no budget, everything broke, which is actually not a problem that we've had to fix in a while. We got, it took about seven years to get all our equipment squared mm -hmm. away, but once we did, everything was pretty good. I don't know why. There's just some, there's a problem now though. And we can't, uh, we just don't, we don't have any way to fix it. So... While we wait on those Patreon dollars, I want to make sure that the show continues to go out. What I've done is I have propped you up on my telephone in front of my computer. It, if you were just uh, duct taped right. to the iMac, it would be actually perfect. be better. Yeah. But uh, I'm not sure that's... I don't even know how long this iMac is going to go for. <laughs> so basically, this entire show harkens back to once upon a time when everything broke and we, for some reason, had to record inside... Uh, <laughs> I think the panic room broke when we had an official studio space for all of three weeks. Uh -huh. And we were relegated to a closet, a small closet on an iPhone. Yep. That's kind of what's going on now. Yeah. So if anything is weird... That's why... <laughs> It's because we're struggling to get through this. Mm -hmm. Having not done the show this way, I'm not even sure. In the end, maybe I'm not even on the show and you're mm -hmm. just talking to yourself. I'm not even sure if this is going to work. So for anybody who hasn't listened before, welcome to Double Feature. So glad this is oh, the first no. show. That you... <laughs> Any other episode, please, <laughs> please. Um, this is a it's, a, it's a weekly film podcast where we pair two films back to back and discuss shared themes as well as uh talk about ideas that the films bring up and we spoil the movies although we rarely actually talk about the plots of the film so we basically it's the worst of both worlds if you're here for a film review show because we won't really talk to you about what goes on in the movies but we will just enough to ruin them for you yeah, yeah. so if if you've seen falling down which will be the first movie uh or you haven't and you don't want us to spoil it, jump to somewhere in the middle where we'll be talking about Man on Fire, which I am told is a different film than Falling Down. It is. And it is a different film. We will be going, we will go right ahead and spoil that to the best of our ability. But people often say to me, Eric, why don't you talk about why the two films are paired today in Double Feature? 
And to that I say, I don't know. Michael puts them together. <laughs> so Michael, <laughs> Michael, I remember back in the days where I had the bandwidth, uh, both the actual bandwidth, but also the emotional the bandwidth. Way I meant to use the, the word <laughs> bandwidth to actually go over a schedule with you and stay up to date on what the fuck was happening. And now I'm just surprised every week when two films appear it, on my doorstep and I watch them and do a it's show. It's really inspiring. You're kind of my muse for this year's schedule. Is I kind of how does part that of me work? Is, part of me is always going, ooh, what's gonna what's gonna pique Eric's interest? And how do I keep <laughs> Eric coming back week after week? <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah well uh the way that i believe you've done it today this is this is a secret theme that only double feature is really equipped to talk about and uh, that is is. (laughs) yeah yeah this is like a, a weird 90s industrial inspired blow up the world's double feature day. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that about, I knew that heavily about falling down. We can talk about some of that stuff. I didn't know that man on fire was, was a nine inch nails. Literally just, yeah. yeah. (laughs) And I mean, I kind of joked on, uh, resident evil about that a little bit. And, uh, you know what the couple movies that's come out, but I remember when you told me about this show, we were talking about it on the phone on FaceTime audio, uh-huh. which uh, always works swimmingly. It's the fucking computer that never, <laughs> whatever. It's fine. Everything's fine. I, you're also, I wish people could see this. You're at a Dutch angle mm-hmm. on the FaceTime no, here because the phone is on top of some boxes. Just, I don't even ever, have a thing to hold the phone. If ever there were a moment in the podcast where somebody was going to come up behind you and kidnap you and take you away. I know. I know it's wait. terrifying. Patreon.com forward slash double feature double feature movie there's a little spoiler there we're spoiling movies we're not even covering we're just spoiling movies we made i know we're spoiling movies that aren't even movies yeah (laughs) that's what we're doing on the show today um listen but the the thing i remember saying to you was that uh oh yeah falling down is basically like the uh fixed dp the movie (laughs) and then man on fire literally took the fixed dp and made a movie Mm -hmm. over it which uh, I thought was just so incredibly fitting. So we can talk about uh, both of those a little bit, but I'm sure you had some other thing in mind besides maybe Eric would like to watch these or there are nine inch nails. Um, Don't don't go down there. There's nine inch nails (laughs) in them there. I I had a couple. One is uh, just general nihilism, just some nihilism, a little bit of nihilism Uh, in there. Yeah. Um, strong today. The nihilism. Another one is, um, pushing a man to the edge and also taking his kid away as a bonus, mm-hmm. a little bonus. Take the kid away. Yeah. There's a strong nihilism. And I was, I would also say, and I don't think these go together, but nihilism and cynicism, mm-hmm. not two things that I would often lump together, but more importantly that I don't think have to go together. And, uh, Today, I, I feel that's heavy in both movies. I would actually say maybe cynicism is more so in both of the movies than even nihilism is. Mm-hmm. You know, I certainly think in, in Man on Fire, it turns uh, into a revenge film yeah. pretty fast. Well, uh, unnecessary revenge this film, is, really. This, we're kind of, yeah, there's kind of going to be a bell curve. It's going to start at a certain level, get more nihilistic, and then by the end of Man on Fire, we're going to be back out of the crater, I think. Okay, cool. So Falling Down is a film that a bunch of people wanted us to cover on the show that I had never seen. 
Yeah, double feature listeners <laughs> on that Patreon. Thank you for your Dutch angle today. <laughs> um, Without you, there would not even be a Dutch angle. That's true. It would just be two, two uh, black inserts yep. just talking to each other. Just no text. We'd be doing this whole thing in Futura. So I, I knew very little about this film outside of that kind of iconic image of man, like your, your standard white collar with a shotgun. Mm-hmm. Horn rimmed glasses. In my head... It was postal, you know, postal. Not yeah, that I've seen yeah, the film, yeah, yeah. but just the idea. Yeah, right. <laughs> postal, infamously a, uh, a UE Bowl yeah. movie made from an even more infamous, I should say, game. Yeah. Which is about a guy going postal. And it's kind of about that, but it's interesting in a lot of ways. Also, the Robert Duvall thing was really surprising. I didn't, so I expected this to be way more nihilistic and way more about some guy who, you know, I basically, let me see if I can put this in a, in another film context. I thought this would be an entire movie about the stapler guy from office space, but the end. Yeah. That's, that's kind of what I thought I was getting into. I did not expect there to be a super cop on his last day on the force. You know, with sure. constant foreshadowing of you're going to die today, man. Well, that uh, the cop actually adds some of the more interesting twists on morality and on what the film is even doing. I have this broad question with this movie that kind of changes a little bit every time I watch it. But I do think there's an answer to this. Mm-hmm. This is a movie that uh, maybe the ultimate example of a movie you just can't make today. It's too many of the things that it just sort of like passes by without question are huge conundrums today. You know, the, uh, the there are things that could be perceived as sexist or racist that mm-hmm. maybe no one even thought about when the movie was made or were maybe focal points. So that's something I want to talk about. But there is, let me put it this way. This is a film about a lunatic. 100% chance that this is a film about a lunatic. There's a 50-50 chance that the film itself is also a lunatic. Yeah. I don't know that the perspective of the film, and I do think we get an answer on this, but especially when I start watching the film, I always go, is this guy, is this a portrait of an everyman or is this an insane person? And what does the film want me to think? I think the most important part of this entire film is a single line at, toward the end of the movie when, oh, there's the ceiling. Uh, He's gone. He's gone. <laughs> No, we're still doing I a show. The most are you still there? You are still there. We're still doing. Let me just put you. Hold on. Let me get this <laughs> can of beans. I'll put you on top uh, of this. The most important part of this film is a single line when the two characters finally meet, and it's when Michael Douglas's character kind of bewilderingly snaps out of it for just a moment and says, "I'm the bad guy." Yes, absolutely. I think that's the hands down most important moment of the movie. I think it's the most informative thing about what's going on, who these characters are, what the film wants to say. I think it's incredibly powerful and kind of chilling when that happens. And I think that to your point, you're totally right. It's kind of the point where the movie goes, this guy doesn't realize that he's a, he's a lunatic, but we do. See, I think that's one of the things, too, that's so powerful about the movie is you don't know that the movie necessarily wants you to feel that way until you get there. Exactly. And it's weird because that would be such a brilliant thing to do 
but there's so little tell of it, it seems like it might be unintentional. So my question is always kind of like how intentional as we're going along the way for the people who have not seen falling down. Shame on you. Or maybe for people who also, just- Also, that was me just moments ago. More so, I, I wonder if people know exactly what we're talking about. When you and I know exactly what each other are talking about, I forget that sometimes other people don't. But I'm talking about like, you know, let's go through some of the beats here, right? I mean, the the uh, Korean store clerk mm-hmm. guy, owner, Isn't I should say. Isn't he Vietnamese? You racist? Well, that's the joke, right? Know, I'm Is, kidding. And that that's actually part of uh, part of one of the tells, maybe. Mm-hmm. Is there, He goes into this store, and so he has these rants. Our protagonist has these rants. This could come off with a guy who is so upset by these small things in life that he has no control over, the sort of cosmic powers that be. And he delivers these rants about how things cost too much. He's being price gouged. How dare this can of soda cost? He gets pissed that he can't just make a phone call and that the guy won't give him change. Kind of like uh, if you had to pee really bad and you went into a store in Chicago and and they went, I don't know why this isn't a problem in LA, but in Chicago, this was always an issue. And they won't let you use their bathroom unless you buy something. And those type of things, those red stapler-esque things bother you so much you go on a rampage mm-hmm. because you just can't handle these, these little things that should not be in life. Uh, another one that I think about is when he gets mad about the street construction mm-hmm. and he goes off on this whole thing. And this is one of the, the real tells you get, I think into his character because he actually explains it. Usually there's just sort of this tone or feeling of there's a vast conspiracy mm-hmm. or there's just like some kind of cosmic inadequacy or something that's causing this but here he really goes no i know what your racket is you guys need to justify your inflated budgets so you just lock off entire sections of the street nothing's even wrong with it you just dig up dirt and put it from one pile into another so that you can all kind of justify your existence Mm -hmm. the big question then is does the film believe that people close off roads to justify their overinflated <laughs> budgets, or is the film showing you a man spiraling out of control? Sure. Do you have these moments where you kind of fluctuate both? Yeah. Like, I, I think I agree with you that in the end, I err on the side of the film knows this is a, a portrait of a right. man spiraling. I mean, there's a rocket launcher. You can't get outside of there's a yeah, rocket yeah, yeah, launcher. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've but, only you know, seen a rocket launcher a handful going... of times. One time it's Paul Kersey <laughs> blowing up the gang to protect the old people, and now it's this. <laughs> right is he how how much paul kersey is he that's, <laughs> that's the, the question yeah i think another another moment that kind of informs that is actually when he has the when, when he meets the neo-nazi mm-hmm. and there he, he is strategically aligned with this person they agree on the ends they are, or rather the means, maybe they agree on the means and they agree on the strategy. Yeah. See, that's a big thing I think for me. And this guy is, you know, you have on one hand, this guy who, you know, wants to literally blow up the construction workers. And on the other hand, you have this guy that is politically aligned with the idea of tearing down this kind of establishment for all these nefarious reasons that do not jive with the crazy guy 
And I think that that's another thing because I think, you know, I mean, we talked about it a little last week, but I, I don't think that Nazism is an insanity. I think it's wrong. I think it's a level of misinformation and miseducation and just being shitty. But I think that there is the difference is that that concept is somehow rooted in a certain, um, there's you back it up. The idea is to back it up with something. Sure. I don't think that. Well, thinking it's an insanity is how Nazis started reappearing sure. in common culture. Right. Cause we all just went, Oh, those were monsters and we extinguished them all. Now it's all fine. Mm-hmm. And then we went, Oh damn, there's a lot of Nazis around here. How did this even happen? <laughs> It's almost like they were human beings who had their minds right. changed. Or one of them got away and bit a couple I other bit people. The other one. <laughs> <laughs> so that there could Damn be a you, sequel 50 years later. Yeah. yeah World yeah. War II, 2049. <laughs> yeah, well, I understand your logic on that. I see this is another thing. This would be so easy. This is a Joel Schumacher film. It is. Right? And I think arguably the only man, the only man capable of standing right next to Tony Scott, honestly, it's God, it's so weird because if this was Martin Scorsese, we would be without a doubt talking about how brilliant it is that he keeps going through these taxi driver Mm -hmm. type situations where his immorality is paired with another person's and you get to see the differences, but because it's Joel Schumacher I mean, not because it's Joel Schumacher in particular that I can, I can like get over Batman's nipples and all of, all of the Joe Schumacher baggage, but because it's a guy who isn't Francis Ford Coppola, I have a bit of a problem when he literally stands the guy next to a Nazi and they have a scene about how they're not the same, that they're actually having a scene about how they're not the same. (laughs) There's always this lingering suspicion that's kind of unfounded, really, just because of the way that I'm not. Uh, the film's just so much more subtle than it might appear. Right. It's got such an exploitative sort of uh, dressing. And, you know, the, the shop owner, we made the joke about it. I don't think I ever resolved that whole little bit, but there's a lot of jabs made at like, Hey, if you people want to be here, you need to speak English. And in a moment where the film would normally be trying to get the protagonist, get the audience to rally behind the protagonist, that's a line thrown out right with all of the other like, yeah, prices are too high and the man is keeping us down and you should speak English. Oh, wait a second. Right. (laughs) That's kind of racist. What? How'd that happen? So because he plants that in a movie where you would typically expect the like, rah, rah, yeah, the protagonist is going to bring it all down and, Mm -hmm. you know, level the playing field. That's something that's a little more interesting, a little more subtle than, uh, and you know, they talk about that later that like, yeah, I'm not even Korean yeah, or whichever. There's a Japanese guy, but then there's also like the other guy. That's the problem is they make that joke about six times. Well, yeah, there's (laughs) right, right. And the, the movie also, there's a level of ambiguity to that character's motivation, um, contrasted to the focused and specific motivation of the detective. Mm-hmm. We are kind of, you know, he calls home and he goes, I'm coming home. And you go, okay, so home is apparently some sort of motivation. And then they go, he's been coming home for days and days. And you go, yeah, okay, yeah. so... It's not abnormal, but there's a restraining order. It's that, that's that, another interesting thing. That 
ambiguity of the thing that's amazing and really probably other than that scene, the am I the bad guy scene? One of the most notable things about this movie is that he has already snapped when yeah. falling down. Yeah. When you see that title card, Michael Douglas has snapped already. It is not as will be in traffic. It is not a slow burn. It is not a, how did this guy get to this point? Right, right. That is never fully informed, nor is it really questioned. The point is not what leads a man to do this. It's what is a man who has been led to do this do? Totally. Absolutely. Well, my friend, Nick, great guy, super big fan of this movie. And I talked to him about it shortly before we did this show. And when I brought that up, he pointed out this thing. So I, I really don't want to take credit for it, but I think it, he, he really does kind of nail this. He's talking about how this guy has been clocking in and out for so long that the whole world just changed around him. And it wasn't until he got out of his fucking car that he realized, you know, you go into a McDonald's and you can't get breakfast after breakfast stops being served. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole people don't all speak American anymore. Mm-hmm. And he kind of, at some point in time, the, the world just, there was a frozen picture of this 1950s type existence. And then this guy just like went and worked his weird sure. missile job. Yeah. Thinking he was like super patriot hero man. Meanwhile, everything around him kind of changed. And then when he re-enters that world, he is no longer a creature of that world. He's a creature of the old world and has, he's a broken man, basically. Mm-hmm. He has snapped long ago. And I think it's interesting to think about, you know, maybe it is uh, his job and staying away from his family that's done that, especially when we look at that in contrast to the cop and how there is this idea that, like, he's going to leave the force and come back to family life. And maybe they are both creatures of their job a little bit. And then again, more nuanced. So why is one snapped and one is still somehow connected to reality? Or is one a future portrait of the other? If that cop doesn't get out and return to normal life mm-hmm. and keeps punching the clock, is he going to turn into a psychopath? Is there the, or at least have that, that kind of frozen mindset? No, I mean, yeah, this movie is littered with that kind of stuff. Unfortunately, it's also a nineties movie. It's a Joel Schumacher movie and it's not the easiest pill to swallow. It's maybe that's not it. Maybe that's not the thing. Maybe what it is, is that the lens is pointed too much at the rocket launcher and not enough at the guy. Mm. But I honestly think that if the lens was pointed too much at the guy, this would just be taxi driver. And I'm not interested in taxi driver in the nineties. I'm more interested in, this movie I'm interested in kind of not only that it's kind of sort of a meta element to go. This is also what taxi driver looks like in the nineties. Yeah, sure. And if Martin Scorsese were to wake up right now and people were going, this is just like taxi driver. He too may take a rocket launcher and shoot it at the construction worker. Yeah. Well, I think taxi driver was really focused on a specific individual, but there was a relationship between, you know, him and the world around him Mm -hmm. where I think falling down is a little bit more about a changing zeitgeist type of thing. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, it talks about kind of how the American dream has changed 
or how, uh, you know, he keeps feeling justified in these different things. And especially that end dialogue is so revealing because he's talking about like, I built missiles. So why should plastic surgeons get all the money? Shouldn't I basically, Hey, I was promised that things would be okay for me because I'm doing the right right thing. And I've been doing it this whole time. What the fuck? And he's saying that in the middle of a, a, rampage of carnage mm-hmm. so it's kind of he's showing up at the end of a string of wrong things he's doing going i was promised this would be okay and i think that's really fascinating mm-hmm. you know i think uh a lot of the trouble seeing that along the way is you get to scenes like um when they're talking to his wife they're talking about the restraining order and this is what I meant about watching that today. You know, she talks about, they, they kind of question her like, oh, you got a restraining order. So he beat you. Oh, he never, he never actually hit you. Oh, he kind of never really did anything to you. And especially, man, especially today, that plays off like some victim blaming, mm-hmm. you know, like, oh, so that restraining order isn't justified. And you, I don't know. I don't know how else it's blaming her. There's just this sort of air of that. When I think you're meant to watch that in the 90s, in the era of Frontline Assembly's Millennium, I sampled this film. That's my little Frontline Assembly 90s. Yeah, there that is. So you can go Apple Music, that record. I think it's more meant to draw a curiosity on him. So what is this guy's deal? There was a restraining order. Maybe he could snap, but he hadn't snapped yet. Sure. And I think that's the kind of thing that that scene informs. It's a a big character study and a big, you know, you have to understand that character. You have to understand the times that have changed, I think, between how stuff froze in his mind and the outside world to understand him. And that's kind of the opposite of the character in Man on Fire, who you kind of get a fairly strong premise. He has a habit of snapping. Sure. And now he's put in a, you know, it's bull in a china closet. I believe that's a china shop. I don't think a bull would fit in a china closet. It's a china closet. I'm on an iPhone. Um, (laughs) He... He, Michael, you're a little bit like a bull in the <laughs> closet right now. Uh, I'm, I'm more like a phone in what appears to be some sort of paper box. <laughs> Michael Kester, bull in a retina display. There we go. Um, this movie, another movie I hadn't seen but had been told to see, it's interesting because, again, not exactly what I expected, but actually plays really interestingly with a lot of the themes in Falling Down. It's almost like we're on the 10th year of a podcast where we pair two films based on their themes. Really good at this. Good at this programming. Well, we're good at that part. Again, on an iPhone, in a box. Um, I'm working with the... (laughs) Any other show, they just wouldn't do a show this week. Which we're also very close to, but... (laughs) Keeping it alive, keeping the dream alive. And so, first off, the, I'll be honest, the timestamp scared the fuck out of me when this movie started. And it was like two and a half funnel hours. And I was like, no. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this cannot be two hours. <laughs> it is. Two hours of one and a half second edits. Oh, my God. <laughs> we'll get to that for sure. What you get. But the movie kind of sets itself up for a very interesting roadmap Mm. because you have this guy who's coming again you don't know his background that's 
an important aspect to this character. Although, you know, he's tight with Christopher Walken. So, you know, he's got an interesting background (laughs) and Uh he comes in, they kind of go, we need a bodyguard babysitter, but you don't know it's for the kid, right? There's that intentional little classic mislead. Yeah. And then he's got a pet bird all of a sudden. And (laughs) the dynamic is really interesting at the beginning of the movie because I've, it starts to feel sort of like a buddy cop sort of dynamic between him and the kid. And oh, is he going to grow to love this child and oh, it's good. And then she gets kidnapped and he gets killed. That's what happens in that scene. Don't tell me differently. That is what happens about 35 minutes into the movie. The kid uh, is kidnapped and the main character is killed to death. And then they go, all right, two hours left. He shot through the heart and then it's too late. He's, it's like he stubbed his foot for the rest of the film. John McClane's having a bad day. Got shot through the heart. Two hours left. Well, and it's it's kind of I like that because for me, it's um, it's kind of like that idea that the crow talks about about um, yeah, you know, yeah. unfinished business. I thought about the, totally thought about that during the night. And yeah. so he comes back and is just the spirit of fucking vengeance sans flaming skull. <laughs> I don't think the crow had a flaming skull. No. I believe you're mixing your references uh, at this true. point. Uh, sorry. And is the city of angels. <laughs> you remember that part where the crow grabs the guy with his lasso of truth? Yeah, no, that's a good part. That I like that. Um, and he, he, you know, mows down all the bad guys and, you know, super Liam Neeson taken style finds out all the information only to die as soon as the job is done. I mean, moments after the job is done. Well, again, perhaps a little more subtlety than you would. Exactly. It's like without spelling that without a mythical crow that Mm -hmm. flies around handing out spirits to different bodies, it's a little difficult to watch this and, and remember, you know, this is, um, I almost think of like del Toro land when we, when we venture into some of this, Mm -hmm. this is kind of a story about a guy. Yeah. I thought the exact same thing symbolically dies and then has to, you know, it exists almost in limbo. Mm-hmm. It's way more symbolic than we usually get on the show, but you're one step away from literally saying that to people. Sure. Well, and it's a really interesting redemption story because you have this guy who is, you know, at the bottom of the, well, I guess the top, I was going to say the bottom of the nihilism totem pole, but I think you'd be at the top because you'd be the most nihilistic if you're at the top of the totem pole. I'm not sure how totem pole. I'm not allowed to say totem pole in 2017. Uh, <laughs> never mind. Uh, I also don't know if if it's necessarily if you can be nihilistic if you've already died. Well, no, I mean at the very beginning. I'm talking pre pet oh, bird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, so yeah before sure. he even has like, a little pet as bird, as nihilistic as yeah. possible. Yeah, and then he kind of it's it's almost as if somebody injects a lust for life into him. Uh, the ironic moment where his life is ripped from his body. Mm -hmm. And then it's kind of this, you know, redemption arc where he goes, I it's, you know, we've seen it a million times, but it's so poetic in the context of this movie when it's not high contrast, chop, chop, chop. You don't, you think that loses some poetry a little. See, unlike the last film where I just randomly blame the director's name for you not thinking the movie's subtle man on fire really is. I mean, we've talked about Tony Scott before, right? I think so. I think 
a, a little bit. Uh, probably when we did True Romance, which I think is a movie we've done on the show. I'm pretty sure it's a believe movie we've done it, on If the I show. had to guess, I would say just because of Gary Oldman, it's a film we've done on the show. No, we had to have done yeah. it because I've only seen it one time. Yeah, and it was when it was I, with yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. that was it. That was a, my library thing. Yes, back when we could at least guarantee we only needed one display and <laughs> copy of a movie to do the show because we were in the same room. You remember those fucking mm-hmm. days? Wow, that's weird. We used to actually watch movies together. I haven't done that in like eight years. Although the Patreon would have gone toward DiGiorno Pizza in those days, <laughs> right? I haven't had a DiGiorno Pizza in in vegan number of days. I don't even remember what my fucking point was. Oh, the edits. Yeah, right. So Tony Scott is a, a director. I know we definitely talked about Beat the Devil, mm-hmm. where he started with a lot of commercial work. I think probably something that really Scott got him into was like, hey, do commercials. If memory serves me correctly, I don't think we've talked about that, but I think that's kind of how that started. And, you know, he has a very flashy style that is associated very much with the 90s, but mostly because that's when he was around making films. That was uh, actually before his suicide, which is uh, another, I think, really notable thing about the direction sure oh i mean i can't not think about you know when somebody is consistently putting out work with a very influential and very heavy style i mean look how much of the 90s as much as we credit tarantino for everything you know look how much of that choppy fast action fast edit Mm -hmm. when you think about 90s editing this is the guy Mm -hmm. this is the fucking guy in more than half of cases I would say you have to point first here and go, oh yeah, look at this stuff. This is about the height of the example of this. And then, you know, took his own life, jumped off a bridge and uh, that influence, maybe because of the time, who knows what would have come afterwards. But I don't know. I always really felt that hole in cinema after he was gone. Mm -hmm. I always felt that like he might've, kept that torch sure it's like if michael mann stopped making films today right you know there would be a lot less michael mann influenced films right very notably and nobody's really making films like michael mann anymore except michael mann and i think that would have been the same with tony scott i think he would have been making tony scott movies still Mm -hmm. and sort of preserving that that style showing what that would look like in 2017 because he wouldn't have forfeited his style but he would have forced to be making movies in 2017 because he's not allowed to stop sure yeah and you know it's just always interesting to me directors whose career i remember you know seeing their new films as they came out john waters is another example Mm. of like i expected the next film and the next film and when those abruptly stopped for whatever reason that you always kind of, you can see real time the impact in cinema mm-hmm. and, and more and more so every year. And then also his suicide was controversial because uh, some people said he had cancer and some people said he was on drugs that made him commit suicide, which is obviously of interest to me. And so I don't know, that's, that's where that whole thing lies, obviously not the point of the show. What I was getting at was that as a director coming out of the commercial world, he had a style that, once again in this film, as with Falling Down, feels exploitation-y. And so, you know, these, you have to remember, this is pre-taken. Mm-hmm. This is pre, 
the return and return again and triple return of the Punisher. And this is really, I think, actually, especially for a Denzel Washington film, not used to seeing him going around like putting bombs in people's butts. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, sure. it's super, yeah. it's super exploitative, yeah. like goes yeah. for it. A guy who I think, you know, is also a really notable director to me because his style beyond the edits and the fast paced stuff and the kind of exposure flashes and all the cinematography stuff, he's using, he's the only action director I can think of to use jump scares. Mm-hmm. He was somebody who in his heart kind of had a, a foot in the horror world that was never really, nobody ever really put a light on that. But we look at, uh, you know, beat the devil at fucking Marilyn Manson in it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's, there's always these things that are just like, they're gritty and they're pulp. Pulp is the word I want. Yeah. He had a pulpy style that is celebrated and embraced in horror and not embraced and actually frowned upon very often in action where he might've led to things like the raid, mm-hmm. you know, that we talk about now or when we did that uh, with the crank show and we talked about that kind of like going for it, next level brutality, you know, do things in cinema we haven't seen before. Sure. Man on fire was pushing it pretty hard. Well, and Some of that stuff is pretty brutal, like unnecessarily exploitative and brutal. And what's really interesting about it is in the context of the movie, the character doesn't seem to realize that. No, not that's, at all. Well, that's what makes it feel like exploitation. Yeah, is that he's just like, I will now chop off your limbs one and, by and one. And to go back to to go back to kind of that hyper metaphorical arc, it's because he's fucking dead. You know, I mean, what does he lose at this point? To kind of go back to what we were talking about a little bit with falling down, is he is just operating on this whole other level. Mm-hmm. Whereas falling down was a guy coming out of his day job after 40 years and readjusting. This is a guy just going, This is my fucking day job, man. Yeah. He's clocking back in for the first time in a long sure, time. Sure. And it's just second nature. And he just, I mean, that, and it's Denzel Washington is the perfect performer for this because nobody is more able to just kind of coolly slap a guy in the face you know just be that person who just shows up and goes man like i don't give a fuck what happens right now see this is this is part of what's scary about a guy who actually does this in such a cool way i feel like we see this so much in movies again we'll use liam neeson as kind of our prototype for this Mm -hmm. liam neeson reeks of i am cool as i do this i am cold and surgical and precise i take no enjoyment yeah he kind of he has he realizes what he's doing in those movies and he's doing it in a way that i don't think uh matches reality because you wouldn't have such a he kind of does it like he knows a camera is on him. Mm-hmm. There is a sort of of uh, so, cool neutrality yeah, to it's it. It's kind of like the opposite of Crank, where if his heart rate goes over thirty beats per second, the bus explodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a little, mm-hmm. t- it's a little too James Bondy mm-hmm. for uh, reality. Not for, not to to slam the movies at all. We did a Taken on this show, mm-hmm. right? We've mentioned Taken all the time, and obviously there's been another hidden reference to Taken somewhere <laughs> in, oh, it's the double feature movie. Uh, but this is a guy who I think actually resembles, strangely for a, a movie as stylistic as Man on Fire, maybe a more realistic take. 
and that he doesn't really care about how cool he looks. He doesn't realize a moment from, you know, crossing the street illegally to cutting someone's fingers off and torturing them with a cigarette lighter. Mm -hmm. I don't think he feels that one has any more weight than the other. Sure. Liam Neeson knows when he's cutting a finger off, he's cutting a fucking finger off. This guy is just kind of like, these are things that I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> these are all well, just some I things mean, that yeah, are about it's, to happen. It's almost like... With the exception of putting a bomb in the guy's butt, I guess. It's basically, pretty. it's the same as, you know, largely what I consider uh, when I just, you know, fantasize about your old job where people would come in and go, we have a problem. And you go, I don't know, cut off some fucking fingers. <laughs> <laughs> I don't... I don't remember it being like but, that. You know, where where he just goes, somebody somebody walks in to somebody has walked into Denzel Washington's office and went, This um this motherfucker has information about that girl that died. And he goes, Okay, all right, well, let's draw up a plan. And he just sits down at his desk and he goes, Okay, so uh hijack the dude in a car, we'll tape his hands to the steering wheel, cut off a finger, ask a question, finger question. If he answers the question, to blow up the car. Cool. Uh, and then he just goes and does it. And it's just, you know, he's he's following a logistical protocol. Like he's from another world. Like he doesn't even, yeah, he doesn't it, even realize this is yeah, not a thing right, people do. Exactly. It's, he basically walks in, sits down. The guy goes, why are you taping my hands? And he's like, what are you? Because I'm, I'm about to cut your fingers off and run your car off the cliff. What? Why? Yeah. What do you get at McDonald's? Yeah. And that is not the way anyone ever portrays these characters. Mm -hmm. I was going to say isn't common, but I can't think of anybody, no matter how cool somebody plays it, they play it cool like they know it's cool. Right. And there are moments of that in here, but so much of the just operating minute to minute, this is what's going to happen next. I mean, I that's a really interesting acting choice. Mm Mm-hmm. And I don't know that anybody else would have made it. I was going to make a reference to not looking at the explosion Mm. and how, you know, when you're cool, you don't look at the explosion. But in the context of man on fire, he's he's not the kind of cool where he doesn't need to see the explosion. He's the kind of cool where once the RPG is fired, he needs to get down there pretty quick. So he's not going to bother watching it hit the car. Right. (laughs) Which both have the same effect, but for very important different reasons. And to feel that, that tiny little difference there makes this character uh, really memorable and, and the movie itself, you know, really memorable. And it also makes, Again, talking about the final scenes of these movies, the trade-off at the end, really impactful Mm -hmm. because he's gone through a lot. And again, with zero emotional connection and then to only have him find out almost toward the end of the process that she's still alive. And then he goes, okay, well, new objective, you know, bonus points. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. And then he sees her and she, you know something he never thought he'd see again, something he never thought he'd experience again. And he's kind of like, yeah, but I mean, like I got to die though. Yeah. It's not a man. Even, even a Terminator has more sort of self-awareness of what is or isn't. Yeah, There was no, I mean, yeah. It's like the, the tracks just flip over, mm -hmm. you know, it's a switch clicks and he goes, Oh, now we're on operation rescue girl. Mm -hmm. No, like, Holy fuck. She's alive. And well, everyone knew this watching the film, but me. And at the end of Terminator, he lower he's lowered into the melting steel and gives a heartfelt thumbs up Spoiler. to his new young friend. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. In this right. movie, that doesn't happen. In this here. movie, no. she goes, "I love you," and he just stares at her, and she goes, "You love me too," and he goes, "Yep," and then walks away and dies. <laughs> we have a website. Look, if we've made it this whole, I won't really know until we're mixing, but I think we've made it this whole time. Um, I'm, uh, I'm gonna go with we made it. Yeah. Website is doublefeature.fm. Email address, doublefeatureshow at iCloud.com. You can send us a message and we will, one of us will read it. I will read it. <laughs> or it'll be long and I'll just forward it to you and we won't know if anyone reads it. <laughs> we'll just never know. I want to just start forwarding our messages to people who email us all the time. They can just start talking to each other. That'd be interesting. Get a long email, forward it to Charles Crawford. <laughs> just, here, you, you read this. Uh, you can keep that down to, I don't know, 280 Come characters on. or however many fucking characters are going on now. I don't know how many characters will be on Twitter by the time this airs or if this will ever air. I really just don't know anything. This is the nihilism episode. I have no idea what's going to happen and really it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. Our nihilism episodes are usually more bleak than this. I feel pretty good. <laughs> Uh, you can change that though. Go on twitter.com. My uh, handle on there is at eric underscore x13. You're at Pling Michael. Yeah, you can also just use the app for me. You don't have to go to the dot com. No, go to the dot com. Use their beautiful, beautiful interface. I don't have any Twitter jokes. Uh, I do want to thank the executive producers. Listen, I want to thank everybody. Special thanks to literally every person who gives even two dollars on the patreon you can go on there you could do it for just this month if you want we just need some help put two bucks on there two bucks five people put in two bucks this problem goes away this show has always kind of been in a place where a few people help us out a lot we are of course eternally appreciative and yet terrified of them i just wish more people <laughs> would contribute smaller amounts that's what i want that's what I want here. I will, it will ease my, I don't think this phone thing's going to keep working. Mm -hmm. So those things. Also, of course, I made a movie, dispositionfilm.com. It's not playing in a theater yet. And uh, I'm not going to tell you when it is unless you sign up. So you should do that. <laughs> sign up for that ransom list. And I'll send you a little thing when you can go see it. And, uh, you know, we can say hi and you can give me your nine paragraph rants uh, when you see me in person. <laughs> That's all I got. What do we, are there other things that happen at the end of the show? That's everything, Yeah, right? well, there's the thing Those are all we the talk things. about, you know, if there's another show, we tell you what the movies are. So, for example. There's going to be another show. Yeah. I want to do another um, show after this. Uh, next, People are going to give their $2. I can feel it. <laughs> next week. Let's just hold out a little while longer. Like Denzel. <laughs> That's the that's where I I feel yeah, like I'm we'll in do a, the year a limbo finale right now. and then die. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Not this year, Michael. That was year nine of double feature. Year ten going strong. No, year ten year nine was the first death. Now we have this is the this is this is once the crow has come and wrapped on our graves. Year nine was Eric jumps off a bridge double feature. Right. <laughs> year ten we'll find out. Next week we're gonna take a look at isolationism, humans, and love. Uh, I think there's some English and there's some subtitles. Ooh, exciting. In these two movies. Um, we're going to do a film. It's technically Australian, but we'll have to get into that next week called Tana. 
And then we're going to pair that with a film called The Beasts of the Southern Wild. Is the beast communism? I heard the beast is communism. <laughs> I don't think is that I don't think it is. Um, but now that we've been informed of uh the real beast and the uh mental handicap of communism we'll have to take a deeper look that's a last episode joke for people next who time don't. on double feature watch more fucking film live deliciously bye this program is a proud member of the battleship pretension fleet 